Thank you for tuning in to the Vigilance Press Podcast. My name is James Dossie, and today we have a very special guest, John Rogers, one of the uh, creative forces behind the new TV show The Librarians, is with us. John, how are you doing today? Very good, James. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for joining me. One of the things that uh, we like to focus on on the Vigilance Press Podcast is role-playing games. That's our, our big focus, and John has actually done a lot with... Uh, gaming, but he's also done a lot in other properties, uh, including comic books, which we're also big fans of here on the Vigilance Press. But I'd kind of like to just introduce you to our audience, so we're going to kind of talk about um, a little bit about your background in gaming, and then uh, we'll kind of, uh, you know, just real quick run through your, your resume sure. of the last, what, 30 years? <laughs> yeah, yeah, thereabouts. <laughs> yeah. So um, when did you get involved in gaming, and uh, do you still game? Well, yeah, I, um, you know, I started uh, on the Red Box. You know, I started like a lot of guys, or a lot of uh, men and women, pardon me. Uh, you know, as a kid, reading the Games Magazine article about Dungeons and Dragons, and then getting it, and, and you know, I can still remember the the sort of weird faded blue of that instruction manual. And um, you know, we I played with my sister, who was like, "All right, this is fun," but I'm not super nuts about it. And then uh, eventually wound up playing with. You know, friends in high school, a little bit in college, um, and then I was on the road as a stand-up, and it just got a lot harder to find a group, and I kind of switched, actually, uh, because it was easier to carry a deck with me. Uh, then I got into Magic for a while, so I, I had a couple decks with me when I'd go to different towns, and yeah, I'd show up in these towns to do stand-up and uh, find out where the hobby shop was, because, you know, you, as stand-up, you work an hour a night. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I'm in a, a, someplace with a hobby shop, I can go and, you know, play Magic in the afternoon and then go grab dinner and, and, and uh, do stand-up at night. Uh, and, you know, really uh, kind of when I moved to L.A., you know, New York, my first screenwriting, my first steady screenwriting job uh, was on Cosby, uh, the, the CBS reboot that was in uh, New York City that was on CBS in the, in the 90s. And uh, I played a little there, but I was just, it was one of those jobs you were just, you know, up, up, out at the office until 2 a.m. Uh, so when I came back to L.A., uh, it was actually interesting because I came back to L.A. and, God, this is now, uh, actually came to L.A. I didn't come back to L.A. Uh, this is 15-something years ago. Um, I was talking to the two guys who were producing the Mage movie, Andy Cosby and Ross Ritchie, two young guys, very aggressive. Uh, you know, they went on to form Boom Studios and been very successful, and uh, the comic book company and now film company. And um, they were young punks, as was I, and we were sitting around actually playing poker one night. And somebody said, you know, if we, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this would have been all of us playing D&D. And we all kind of looked around and went, well, why, why can't it be? Like, why can't it be D&D? Like, nobody's, nobody's going to stop us at this point. Uh, and so it was kind of the um, tail end of second, beginning of third edition. Uh, so we started a campaign. It was, um, you know, Ross, now his wife, Joanna Stokes, a great writer who was actually married to Ross. Andy, a couple of different people swung by. Mike Nelson, who wrote the great, writes the great comic book uh, Hexed now, and his book released a young adult novel uh, under that title. Uh, people, different people dropping in. Uh, Mark Wade actually dropped into that game every now and then. Oh, neat. Uh, different comic book writers, when they were in town, would mm-hmm. um, would swing in, uh, and then uh, eventually, you know, everyone kind of as as happens to every gaming group, everyone kind of went their separate ways and got busy or this and that, and, and I kind of stayed with it because I really enjoyed. Uh, it was a good hobby for me. I, you know, I'm a little obsessive. 
Uh, I need something that's not writing as a hobby when I'm writing. And the game design aspect of it, sort of pulling apart the rules and looking how they worked and, and learning how gaming was evolving was a good hobby. So that really stayed a very, uh, a very big hobby for me all the way to now, you know, for like the last 10, 15 years. Cool. So what have you been playing lately? Uh, well, we've got a fourth ed campaign, um, which uh, we've been playing for four years now. Uh, one of the DMs is actually a writer on uh, the, the, the GM is actually a writer on the librarians, Jeremy Bernstein. Um, in one of those weird things, he was actually uh, had come up for a position on Leverage and then started there and we were playing together and then uh, now he's on, on uh, Librarians. Um, it's basically Hollywood is scattered like full. Now that this generation of, of, of geeks is in their 40s and running things, there's, like, there's a, a fairly big number of showrunners and writers playing regular games. Like Javi Griot-Maxwa has a regular game. Uh, who created The Middleman, of course, was a lost writer, mm-hmm. uh, great writer. He has a regular Friday night game. You know, it's very interesting. It's very um, sort of the geeks have inherited the earth, uh, you know, in a, in a lot of places now when you go around to L.A. Uh, and uh, so we've got a fourth ed campaign we're playing in forever, which is great. It's a great story. I'm trying to get him to go to fifth because I really do like fifth ed a lot better. Uh, but he's kind of dug in on the mechanics of it, which I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little hard to convert. 15th level characters over and let's let's go on the fly. Uh, I personally really got into Savage Worlds and uh, played uh, when I would run the one shots, uh, run little mini campaigns. I used Savage Worlds for a long time and then I kind of spot welded um, Savage Worlds and Fate together. Uh, and it was nice because the forums uh, and, and the RPG um, community is vibrant enough that like uh, I posted it up and Shane Hensley actually dropped in and went yeah I kind of do a similar thing like here's my version you know it's so cool now mm-hmm. uh, you know as opposed to when we started role-playing games that you just know I have just tons of friends from role-playing the, the role-playing game design and the role-playing community that I have never met personally and uh, but I you know probably email with at least once or twice a week uh, and chat with online and, and, tw- and you know Twitter friends and that sort of thing so, uh, yeah, so a little bit of Fate. Uh, I've been really uh, impressed by what Fate is doing. Um, you know, some story games. Uh, of course, I did the Fiasco episode of Tabletop. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I, I have to say, if, if anybody played, hasn't seen that episode, go watch uh, it. It is hilarious. All, all three, it's huge. They got, <laughs> yes. It was actually very nice. I was, watching, I was walking by Bully Pulpit Games at Comic-Con, and they yelled, Do you have any idea how many copies of Fiasco you sold? But, yeah, <laughs> I think... I, I think uh, I think uh, Allison Hayslip being adorable while playing probably did a lot more than me. But all right, yeah, I'll, t- I'll, I'll take that. Um, dead eyes. And, yeah, exactly, dead eyes. Uh, but, you know, that was a, that, I think Tabletop's been a great show to just, you know, kind of take you all the way through that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's a little bit of a mix. I, I played um, Reality Blurs. That's a great Cthulhu uh, version of the uh, Apocalypse engine, the world engine uh, called Tremulous, which I've run a couple times and really enjoy. Uh, but right now, um, you know, coming off a show, it was very much just whatever I could, I could, you know, throw time on, and that was mostly the D and D campaign. Mm-hmm. I've I've played a little Storium, and I dig it. I just I just know it will eat my life, and I have to be very careful about how I get into it. <laughs> uh, so, and, so and, and then words, late night, I do a little video gaming. So in other words, you have uh, got a lot of punches on your RPG section oh, of your I've, geek card. <laughs> I, I am looking at uh, I'm looking at uh, my dice bags in my briefcase and I'm looking at a large 20-sided die on my briefcase on my bookcase now even as we speak. Yes. Fantastic. So, um how, would you say that uh, it's safe to say that 
maybe not limited to you, but just in general, that role-playing games and the way that they're evolving has informed, uh, not just been informed, but actually informed how how uh, scripts and other things are being written in entertainment now? I think it's beginning to. I think that uh, because I have an obsessive need to formalize, I'm probably one of the first guys who sat down and gone, wait, this isn't a coincidence. This isn't, hey, look, we're creative people. We like these games, and we're also running television shows. Um, I think, uh, again, I have a physics degree. I have a tendency to make notebooks and lists and use different colored inks and pull stuff apart. And it, it really was um, about two years ago or so, I said, you know, there – Role-playing games is about creating a story space for creative people to, tell, to bring their character stories into. A television show is often about a showrunner creating a story space for writers to come and bring their, their characters into, the, the, the characters into. And it is about uh, you know, a lot of role-playing. And really, also, it's for this, really, this is the first generation of role-playing games we're seeing it so explicitly stated uh, with like the work of Robin Laws and James Wallace and um, you know uh, Hindmarch and um, Tidball with uh, that great book, the games. Is the games we play? I can't quite remember. Um, or how we think about games, uh, where you're starting to see people who are experienced in theater and drama who have become game designers taking that and using that to inform their tools, and then me looking at it and going. Oh, all right. Yes, these tools. These tools now back back into the serialized story storytelling space because television, which is serialized storytelling, is a very different space than theater. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, but it's like they took here are some tools from theater. We're going to put it in role playing, which in, in a campaign is serialized storytelling. And then me working in serialized storytelling went, oh look, those tools work, and so you know pulled them in. So uh, definitely. Yeah, there was one moment we were breaking the characters for the librarians, and uh, Jarrah, who's who's played some fate with me, has said, "Are you putting aspects on the board?" <laughs> I went, "They are aspects. They are, you know, every every strong fictional character has attributes which can be tagged both negatively and positively. And one of the traps people fall into is making them only negative or only positive. You know, only virtues, only flaws. And I, I really very, very much took that from fate. Is like, let's make sure each thing about this character can both help them and get them in trouble." Uh, you know, and, and in particular, if you know how fate works, if you're watching the character of Ezekiel Jones this year on Librarians, who's the thief, uh, the fact he's utterly amoral is as equal his superpower as it is his weakness. Uh, and you can, if you watch, for example, the episode, um, you know, in the Fables of Doom, you can absolutely see some imaginary GM just and some player like alternatively tagging, uh, tagging that thief. Uh, aspect back and forth for advantage and disadvantage over each other. Um, very much so. Uh, you know, from the drama system, from Cortex, uh, I grabbed kind of the relationship map idea, the thing that really did very strongly in Smallville. Mm. And got a very good... Uh, I actually sent a picture to the guys and they were, uh, they were amused. There's a, there is a relationship map of the librarian's characters up on the wall. Oh, uh, nice. You know, we actually did some libra- uh, we did some uh, in some of our early Mutants and Masterminds releases, we did some uh, relationship maps inspired by Smallville, too. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a really... It, look, and, and, and look, you're also looking at, uh, you know, Dungeon World gives you fail forward, and I say that all the time, and I mean, fate is fail forward, but you know, Dungeon World very much it has three things. It's never no or yes, it's no and, yes, but, yes, and, and I'm constantly in the writer's room like, it's not just a failure, it's not just a success. 
you know, there has to be something else to it. Mm-hmm. And, and what it did was, what, what, uh, what this gaming terminology, at least for me, has given me, and like I said, I, I doubt many other guys are as formal about it as I am, because I doubt many of them are quite into the, most of them still hobby play one game. I'm probably one of the few guys who just loves systems, you know, mm-hmm. and has done a little design. Um, it has formalized the way to discuss how you wish to execute or develop plot and story in a way that maybe we didn't always have a vocabulary for. But because RPG writers worked very hard to teach people who don't know how to write story how to create story, the player, mm-hmm. they, 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 they boiled those tools down in just nice big wrenches where I can go, look, I'm, this is more subtle than what I'm about to say, but I'm about to use this wrench because it's really well designed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, it's, been, it's been fascinating. It, it certainly is, I would argue... Um, you know, there's a show I'm doing, I've got in development that is based completely on a, a RPG campaign I ran. Uh, you know, and of course, uh, there have been plenty of fantasy series that started that way. And, and I believe the Expanse novels, the science fiction series, the, the Expanse novels which are coming to TV started actually as a, as a sci-fi game, as a sci-fi RPG. And so, you know, I think you're going to see a lot more cross-pollinization as in the next couple of years as more people hop back and forth. It's a bit different from uh, the 70s and 80s when, like, the only glimpses people had of role-playing games were, uh, like, that quick scene in, in E.T., this Steven Spielberg classic, where, you know, the kids are playing Dungeons & Dragons and uh, uh, I remember reading the novelization of that and they didn't know how to spell... Melee, because they were talking yeah. about Mila rounds, M I L I. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. It's it's just kind of funny, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely I think a new way of looking at gaming and at storytelling, which is which is really cool. So, um, one thing I did want to ask you, and I kind of want to drop in some some bits about your your other projects before we get too much into the librarians, but I did want to mention. That um, uh, my friend uh, Greg has asked me to ask you that uh, you've done a lot of comic books and you've done some uh, web comics. Now there's there's a, a story called Arcanum that you've been working on. Oh do, yeah. Do you do you have any uh, like ETA and when you'll be able to get back to work oh, on that? Oh God. Yeah. Hopefully now. <laughs> I mean. You know, it, it, that, that's the Christmas vacation this year is pretty much me catching up on everything, uh, because and it's all because of librarians. To tell you the truth, it really is all because of of the, the schedule we did librarians on, where you know I'm usually pretty good about balancing uh, multiple projects. You know, I wrote the D and D comic back mm-hmm. when I was I was running Leverage. That's uh, the Dragons comic when I was running Leverage. I usually have a couple things on the on the fly, doing some game design. And, and librarians kind of dropped out of the sky so hard and so fast, both for the pilot script and then for physical production. Uh, it nearly murdered me. And, <laughs> and really, anything that was like the opposite of sleep just went away. And it kills me because I have the entire first season of Arcanum plotted out. Uh, it's, it's a full, like, it's, it's, it's a 13 episode, like a, a TV series open uh, season mm-hmm. and, um, uh, of 13 stories. And I've, I've got that outline sitting. And I actually take notes in a, a three-ring binder on blank white pages, and then I uh, photograph them and scan them into Evernote uh, for my notes. And that outline has been sitting in the back of that three-ring binder for a goddamn year now. 
but it was just, uh, yeah, it was. It, unfortunately, when people put you in charge of multi-million dollar projects, you have to kind of show up. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a set of priorities. Um, so. Dipping into comic books a little bit, can you uh, mention some of the other comics you worked on? You said D&D. Um, I know uh, you created one of my favorite new DC characters in a long time, the new Blue Beetle. Uh, oh, co- well, uh, co- Keith Gifford and I did. I mean, I don't yeah. want to take... Because uh, uh, I'm more more public in um, social media. I get a lot of, you created Blue Beetle, and uh, look, I love Jaime, but, you know, it, it, you know Keith Giffen was was standing right there. Um, and, and he, you know, he, he taught me how to write the first seven issues of that. He's like, look, I can't hang around. I've got other stuff to do, but why don't I teach you to write like for the first seven issues, how to teach, how to do serialized comics. Cause I'd done shorts up to that point. I'd done one offs, you know, eight mm-hmm. pages and 10 pages and, and comic writing, by the way, is the hardest writing bar none. It's brutal, mm-hmm. uh, because you are constrained by physical page space as well as pacing. And you're basically editing and directing as you write. It's, it's monstrous. Um, and, and so I was like, yes, I will take seven issues of – I will take basically seven issues of Keith Giffen teaching me how to write comics. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and then you know, I took over on issue seven, and, and the, the, the book was a very solid success. And, and the character in particular, uh, DC apparently needed a Spider-Man. Nobody knew that, but we did. And so there you go. There's Jaime, and he was a huge boon to the you – know, he's, he's on the side of the Warner Brothers building that I drive by every day on my way to work. And I have to admit I'm very pleased. Like, there he is. Hey, Jaime. You know. Fantastic. Uh, I I really miss him. Actually, I really miss writing that book um, because it was such a nice it was such a nice turn of you know because Keith and I very early went let us actually not be in Metropolis let us not be in a fictional city let us do like the ground level what's it like to live in the DC universe because to me that's always more interesting is like what's it like to be the everyday person in mm-hmm. in a bigger historic thing um, there's actually uh, there's actually a um, a TV series, and there's a short story that it's, it's based on that uh, I've been working on um, called Scum, which is just the three worst possible soldiers you can have in the middle of a giant Lord of the Rings war. And I just, I, I adore, like, these guys, all these guys want to do, they don't care about the magic ring, they don't care about the fate of the earth, they would just like to survive the next trench, thank you very much. And to me, that's, you know, Jaime, you know, is like, look, I'm just a dude with a magic suit, I don't know how this works. And, and big stuff, like, he, I hate artificially distant relationships in families. Like that the writer, often because the writer's from a dysfunctional family, but the writer puts his characters in so he gets artificial tension. If you have superpowers, you tell your mom. Like you just, <laughs> that, that drives me crazy you wouldn't do that. Your dad, you know, and we want to do like, oh, look, mom and dad, both there, uh, both awesome, super supportive. You tell your friends. Like you have no reason to keep a secret from them, really. You know, especially mm-hmm. in the DC universe where uh, my enemies will find me. Your enemies are busy fighting Spider- uh, Superman. Your enemies are busy fighting Batman. <laughs> much bigger problems. Um, you know, and it was also fun to do the, you know, the scene, the flashback, the one year later flashback where you, find, you see him as kind of the new kid with, the, you know, with Batman and the Justice League. And then it, it was fun to put all this little stuff in the, around the side. You know of, of the of the series, so I, I really adore that series. And then, um, and it was I, one of the reasons I'll say I stopped writing other people's comics was we had a great experience on that, and I loved it. But we we did a little research, and we realized Jaime as the Blue Beetle was the first new character that had been introduced in DC since 1977, mm. and we're like, you know. 
I get why you'd want to write those characters. They were seminal. They're powerful. They're mythic. Everyone's got a Superman story in them. Everyone's got a Batman story in them. Uh, and some people are great at it. But at some point, at least for me, you're just the janitor in the museum. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll never make a change that matters. You'll never innovate. You'll, you'll put a new lens on something. You'll do something cool. But it's not, it's not, you don't have full creative agency. And there are people who do amazing stuff with that. Uh, and, and satisfying stuff with that, entertaining stuff with that. I don't want to take that away from them. Mm-hmm. But ultimately for me, unless you're creating something, eh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you decided it was time to steal the time travel belt and uh, go, you know, strike off on your own to to continue the the janitor in the in the museum yeah, exactly. reference from go comics. Museum. <laughs> little blue, little booster gold reference. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, I see, I, that was it. Was funny because when the Flash premiered, before he started killing people, I was like, uh, "Is Harrison Wells booster gold?" And my wife's going, "What? The, I don't even know what's coming out of your mouth right now." I'm like, All right, it's <laughs> and I just. It's it's super important. I figured this out. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I was I was. Uh, what's kind of interesting is watching the Flash and Arrow. Now that I have like kind of tapped into some of the social media, it's it's a completely different experience when you're seeing people like John Ostrander comment on episodes that he's seen and what he likes and doesn't like about how they're doing Suicide Squad, than it is like back in the 90s when the original Flash was airing and it was like you were you were basically sitting around the table with your friends trying to figure out all the references and seeing who spotted oh, what. Absolutely. So it's like a completely different world now. You're watching these things and like when you when you were uh, when the when the when the librarians premiered, you have people like Christian Kane live tweeting and and talking about it while it's airing. So um, that's it's just a completely different experience with entertainment now. But, uh, oh, and, and they and the, the network is very strong about you know we really want you to live tweet and some writers really aren't into it. Um, eh, you know I I can go either way. I I don't see anything wrong with it, but I understand why people don't want to do it. But yeah, but yeah, people people uh, want to feel they want they want to feel like they're sitting on one giant couch with yeah. their friends watching something, and I think that's what Twitter is. Twitter is the giant couch. <laughs> So speaking of Twitter, uh, actually, yeah, okay, those those questions um, can wait. Uh, let's see, we covered that. Oh, I will also have to ask a question about uh, you worked in animation as well. Um, what's it? What's the difference? Uh, you worked on on uh, the Jackie Chan, Chan Adventures. Adventures. Yeah, um, I created that, and then, jeez, um, uh, this was God, that was so long ago. Um, I'm gonna screw this up. Uh, I created the pilot, and then uh, consulted for the first season. Like broke all the arcs and broke the stories and everything. But Dwayne Capizzi, uh, who went on to do a lot of other animation, really ran that show after I left, along with um, David Slack, who now is a very big writer on Person of Interest. He he went on Slack, of course, went on to Teen Titans and a bunch of other DC animation, and then uh, mm-hmm. wound up moving over to One Hours a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, it was it was a fantastic experience. One of those really great, really great experience um, where it, it it basically happened because my manager knew I was a Jackie Chan fan, mm-hmm. and my ma- manager said, uh, "Oh, hey, um, I, I was having lunch with somebody at Sony, and they said that they were trying to do a Jackie Chan animated show. And did you have any?" I was like, "I have an idea," and <laughs> you know. I went in and pitched it, and then they brought Jackie, and it was amazing because it's 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 how I get to meet and work with Jackie Chan, and and 
that led to me uh, doing a, a big uncredited rewrite on Rush Hour 2 and then doing a first draft of Rush Hour 3, which we never made, but it led to an, a good working relationship with one of my idols, you know, and, and Jackie. Fantastic. You know, Jackie taking like, I'm going to teach you how to choreograph a fight scene. Oh, God, yes. You know, it's like this, <laughs> this next half hour is the best half hour of my life. <laughs> I know my marriage, my wedding is also nice, but seriously, man. <laughs> Um, and it was, it's good because it does, as both a writer and director, I am able to sit with a second unit and go, no, this is what I want, and I know what I want because Jackie Chan told it to me. So I'm pretty sure I get to call bullshit on whatever you're trying to do here. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, one of my friends uh, in the RPG industry asked me um, if, uh, if uh, the role-playing game Feng Shui or Feng Shui um, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, but uh, uh, had any they, impact they, they on Jackie Chan? actually sent me a correction because I uh, – uh, well, you know what? I had not uh, – I was a um, giant uh, Hong Kong uh, movie fan when I was a stand-up. I used to actually travel with a VCR. A VCR, kids, is like a computer. No, I don't even know how to describe a VCR. They were post-singularity on a VCR. Okay. Uh, um, you know the digital file? Imagine you put that on a compact disc, like a shiny thing. Now imagine that that was a piece of tape. Like a cassette player. No, you won't understand cassette player. <laughs> We're literally post-singularity on the VCR. Um, it, it, I would travel with a VCR in my car. And then I would get to, and I actually write about this because I, um, I wrote the introduction to the new Feng Shui edition. I would get to these hotels when I was a stand-up. And there's a trick. Back then, they had the collar around the, the cable in, so you couldn't steal the TV. Mm-hmm. So there's a trick you do with a house key to actually get in under the collar to unscrew the, um, <laughs> the cable in. And then I would hook up my VCR, and I would travel with like three or four really great Hong Kong action movies, along with when I was on the West Coast, sort of run in and grab stuff out of the bootlegs uh, at the time because nothing was available legally. And, you know, when I was in New York, the first time I was there for Cosby, I'd go to this great uh, bootleg place, the 36th um, Chamber, uh, in Hell's Kitchen. And it was like, it was really right, it was really before they cleaned up that part of New York. And it was like me and um, sort of the Muslim Brotherhood in their store, like kind of arguing over, because Jet Li was just breaking at the time. It was just a really great New York moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, because we we were all united by our love of the awesomeness of Jackie Chan and Kung Fu, and um, so uh, you know it was it was it was really that that really invested me. And then of course I went on to work with Terrence Chang and and uh, John Wu's company for a while too. But um, it was really that you know I didn't really know about Feng Shui until after that. And then as soon as I saw that, I was like, what is this? I mean, when I, when I stumbled across it in a really great um, uh, game store, Arrow mm-hmm. Hobbies here in L.A. And, I was, and then I immediately uh, bought all of the um, supplements. I actually, I just recently, because I lost them all in a move, I went on Amazon and I got all of them again. So I'm literally sitting here in my office in Hollywood on the bottom shelf of my right-hand bookshelf is the original edition of Feng Shui and all of the expansion books. Like all of the faction books are sitting right there six feet from me. Fantastic. So that, I guess that explains your initial interest in Tin Xia. Um. Yes. Well, look, I also like, I also like fate a lot, but I think that, um, you know, and I really was, you know, I think you guys ran a really great Kickstarter and it was, it was like, yes, this is, 
I am all over this. This is uh, this is uh, this is not just in my wheelhouse. It's wearing the captain's hat and honking the horn. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, yeah, that was uh, for for people listening. That was actually my initial uh, chance to to communicate with you was when I saw your name pop up on our backers list, and I was like, no, that's not that. John Rogers, is it? <laughs> oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a giant. RPG. I mean, really, I'm a very soft touch in an RPG Kickstarter. I really am. If you, if you have a PDF of even the alpha rules, I'm like, hello, sailor. You know, I really, it's pretty easy to get. And then it was, I mean, the the game is so well designed, and the world is so well designed. I mean, really, it was, uh, it was eminently satisfying. Yeah. No, I'll get if 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 an RPG flashes across my. Uh, my eyelid on Kickstarter, I will lose about ten minutes every time. Just like, oh, I'll go check it out, see if it's, you know. And, and it's interesting because you know we started Thrillbent uh, as a way to monetize web comics as an experiment. It's working out okay. You know, we we would like more subscribers, but we're doing fine. And um, uh, and I urge everyone to go check that out because not only do you get uh, uh, for three ninety nine a month, you get original material by like Mark Wade and me and the price of one comic book, you get hundreds of, of, of titles. Um, our app is now, I would argue, the best comic reader app on earth. I mean, I really believe, you can now download into our app uh, your own PDFs, CBZs, anything you get from a bundle of holding, you know, a humble bundle, anything like that. Uh, it, it integrates with Dropbox. It's just, and, and I think our viewer just mechanically, uh, because I was, Mark was really obsessed with the artistic side, I was really obsessed with the sort of technical side for, the, for Thrillbent. Uh, I think our our, our uh, reader our reader automatically detects um, two page spreads, so if you rotate our reader, the the pages automatically realign. You know, it's a really and that's free. You can always have the app for free and just use it as you want. Um, you know, for your own for your own digital comic. Uh, but what was I saying? Oh, so for people like for um, people listening, I just want to jump in with the actual website for people who um, may not have caught that. It's thrillbent.com. And, and then uh, if you go on the app store and just put Thrillbent in, you'll get the app. And is it definitely, that available on Android and iPad? Uh, Android's next. Android comes out. We got because I because I uh, iOS is the harder one. We mm-hmm. did that one first, mm-hmm. and then uh, the Android one. I think we we're crunching code and we're kicking it out early in the new year. Cool. Awesome. Um, but we're very, I'm very pleased. With it. And you can get that. That app is free, and you can just use it to read comics, and you will dig it. Um, you can rename files, so uh, like Comixology, which we love, and they're friends of ours. They offer a lot of PBZ, P, uh, PDF and CBZ backups now, and so uh, I'll go before I go on a trip where I won't get um, uh, web access. I'll go on Comixology, and I will grab uh, all the PDFs and CBZs and throw them in my app because also mine does tap to zoom, uh, while theirs does the guided view, and although. I think guided view is a nice piece of tech. To me, page space is actually an important artistic choice. And if I want to zoom in, I want to zoom in where I want to zoom in, not where uh, some diligent but possibly misguided human at Comixology has decided I want to zoom in. Uh, so, you know, it's, 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 it's a nice piece of work. But anyway, uh, but, um, you know, I think Kickstarter, this was all circulating around new ways to monetize media. Uh, I think Kickstarter is such a fantastic thing for the RPG world, far more than comics. Um, I think uh, for the RPG industry, uh, even more than like RPG Drive and Drive Through RPG and the, and the digital delivery, I think that ability to to fund development 
um, and then deliver is is so good for the hobby. It's so good for the hobby because it, it's it, it gets it creates partners and collaborators, not just consumers. You know, mm -hmm. I think Patreon is the same thing, and I will fully admit, like if Patreon had been around. Um, uh, if Patreon had been around when we launched Thrillbent, we might have done Thrillbent differently. Mm -hmm. you know, because they, we basically did Thrillbent because nobody invented Patreon yet. Hmm. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I think there's a lot of really exciting things out there for, people, for creative people who want to share their stuff with uh, strangers. Yep. There's a lot of cool stuff on Thrillbent, too, in terms of like blog posts and stuff. People should check it out. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mark, if, when Mark Wade shows up for four blog posts to tell you how to pitch and, and write a comic, yes, you should read that. Like, that's, that's, yeah. that, is, that, doesn't, that just doesn't drop out of the sky. Yeah. So let's go ahead and start talking. Uh, I know a lot of people may have just tuned in to hear about the librarians. So I do want to get into talking about that. But I kind of – we – like to talk about how stuff gets made so i'm going to kind of ask you about like when did you get involved with the librarians well this is i mean i will admit this is a little surreal so so last summer not this summer but last summer so 2013 um uh we you know leveraged rap i started my production company we had a bunch of stuff we were working on i was kind of between projects writing and i didn't mind because you know running leverage was was uh show running ruins your life and um <laughs> I was kind of enjoying the downtime, and uh, yeah, I was still writing other stuff, developing stuff to produce, not, not to write. And um, Dean and Noah, and Michael Wright at the time, head of TNT, came to me and said, hey, we've been trying to get the rights back to the, the, the librarian movies forever to make a TV series, and we finally got them. It was just in one of those WG, WGA contract screw-ups that just took for, even when the writer wanted to assign the rights, he couldn't, he couldn't do it. You know, it was one of those... Because they were TV movies, and we just don't have that format anymore. You know, mm -hmm. So the rights are all wonky. Uh, we finally got it, um, and we really want to do it, and wonder if you would develop those movies into a show. I said, well, look, there's, guys, there's plenty of very good writers out there who could do that. I actually did a rewrite of the first and third movies, uh, uncredited, so I knew the franchise very well. But I'm like, look, I, I, I think that you know, for a showrunner, you should find somebody else. And they said, well, this is the challenge. Noah can't be in every episode because he's in Falling Skies. Bob can't be in every episode because, well, uh, Bob is, uh, we'll probably not shoot in L.A., and Bob really can't shoot outside L.A. Uh, Jane is on another show, and maybe we can get her for one or two. So basically we need to launch a show based on a series, franchise of movies where nobody in the show can be from the series of movies. <laughs> and I was like, and, and this is where Dean Devlin gets me, because he knows if he puts a, a unsolved Rubik's Cube in front of me, I cannot. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's interesting as hell, isn't it? And I said, and the other thing I said is, look, guys, even though the movies were first, Warehouse 13 came after the movies and did that, that concept very well. I'm a giant Warehouse 13 fan. Saul Rubin X, a very good friend of mine, very good friend of Leverage. He was on our show. He was our yeah. first villain and, and, and one of our big season villains. I love Saul. You know, he's he's uh, always fun. I will, find, I will find a job for Alison Scagliotti tomorrow. You know, I think, I think that was a great show. And they did it. So, um, so it's, we have to do a, a TV show based on a series of movies where we get none of the people from the movies and we can't do the original premise of the movies <laughs> because some other show did it. Like, wow, well, all right, this is interesting. And, and so over that, that, that sort of September to October, uh, really August to October, is like, look, the show we don't have now is the old X-Files. The show we don't have is the old X-Files. It's where they would just go someplace, 
and you didn't know what it was going to be every week. And this began to really fascinate me because Warehouse 13, for as much as I loved it, it was always an object. Grim. It's always a monster. Uh, you know, the, the vampire shows. It's always a vampire or a demon if you're looking at Buffy. You know, you're in the monster. What we didn't have was that early X-Files where you just didn't know what the hell it was going to be every week. Half of the fun was figuring out what the hell it was going to be. Like, all right, what is this going to be? Is it going to be a golem? Is it going to be a tulpa? Is it going to be a curse? Is it aliens? Is it witchcraft? We don't know. And I said, well, let's do that. Let's do the, a show that, and that's the way I sold it to Michael. I said, let Michael Wright, let's just do the show that's the old fun episodes of the X-Files. And he was like, well, sold. Uh, and, and, you know, combine it with my sort of love of hidden, hidden history. You know, the idea there's an alternate magical history of Earth we just don't know about, and all these magical organizations are out there, and the library is just one of them. You know, it's not the, it's not the only thing. It's, there's actually an ecosystem of magic out there, of factions and people with different agendas. And, and so um, once we were over that, it was like, well, we don't want to call the show The Librarian and have someone replace Noah because Noah wants to be in it literally as much as he possibly can. You know, if he had not had Falling Skies, he would have just starred in the show because uh, he loves that character so much. But when Mr. Spielberg pays you to show up and fight aliens, he, he expects you to show up. He's paying you very well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so, so, well, what about a team? What about, you know, what, well, well, he's a polymath, but you can't have a team of polymaths. And then I realized, wait, Lester Dent solved this problem for me in the 30s. It's Doc Savage. Mm-hmm. And so, and then naturally, we looked at something like, look, there's also over here, there's Doctor Who and Torchwood. You know, there's models for this. There's ways we can approach it that nobody's doing right now. And so uh, we just said, look, let us just consciously embrace. And, and, and Noah said this. He's like, look, I don't mind having special effects where you can sometimes see the strength. That's the fun of the show. The fun of the show is, uh, much like I said, Leverage was the best show that was on in like the early 70s, right after Rockford Files, which you never saw. Uh, <laughs> The Librarians is the show that came on after Tom Baker's Doctor Who. That's the show for me. And so, you know, we just ran with it. We, and then we built a team of, I, I think, interesting people. But, but this is what was so crazy. Um, so I was, I was not working. had all these other projects. I was, I was uh, doing Thrill Bent, and I was focusing on some other stuff. And, and you know, Thrill Bent full-time. Wrote the script, turned it in. They greenlit it, and then said, but... They, they greenlit it like right in January and said, but because of Noah's schedule for Falling Skies, if we're going to shoot him as many episodes as we can, we have to shoot it now. Now, you usually have three to four months of prep before you start shooting a series. We had five weeks. Wow. Literally five weeks. I was hiring writers four and a half weeks up. We did not have the entire cast in place until the day before we started shooting. Literally the day before we rolled cameras, all the contracts weren't closed. And... It was madness. It was utter madness. And so we just, uh, unlike Leverage, where because we, we had a proper prep time and Chris Downey and I very, knew that show very well and that format very show, we were always two or three scripts ahead on Leverage. We very rarely had a bad time where like, oh my God, what are we going to shoot? We, we were way ahead on Leverage all the time. Um, this thing, uh, we were writing and rewriting every day right up to first day of prep. Now, we never prepped without a script, which is my golden rule on a staff. But we, boy... Boy, did we run it tight. You know, <laughs> boy, we ran it very tight. Um, and also, you know, the challenge was when we started the, the, the staff, which was a mix of writers I worked with before and some new, very cool writers, 
And, and also, a lot of writers weren't available because we were going right in the middle of, of, a, of the season. So a lot of people I would have ordinarily hired just were on jobs already. I said, look, here's the thing. On Leverage, Chris Downey and I knew exactly the show we wanted to make. We knew the references. We probably each had about 15 story ideas in our head on, on, to start. I have no idea what this show is. Like, we are going to create this show. And, and so the index cards just go to the board. I said, this is what we're going to do. Let us assume we live in a world where every myth, every legend, every weird story, every bizarre location, every monster is somehow real and somehow hidden in the ecosystem around us. Let's just start putting cards on the board. And that's what we did for like three days, just like pack after pack of index cards of whatever weird thing you could think of. Like, uh, what about... A Undines, throw Undines up there. What about Dorian Gray? Dorian Gray. What about Tesla? Up goes Tesla. What about the classics? Frankenstein, Mummy, Dracula, all of them up. You know, and, and we just spread it out before us. And that's very much when the sort of world-building aspects of role-playing games came in, where I now had the tools to go, okay, writers slash players, what's our world? What do we want to explore here? And it, it slowly it, it pulled together um, into a pretty decent, coherent whole. Uh, and... and uh, and we were nice, you know, we were, and we ran into the usual stuff. I mean, very frustratingly, um, Jane Kurt was a much bigger part of the show. And because of contract issues, not only could I not have her for more than the two-part pilot, at the last minute they came to me and said she can only be in one of those two episodes, which is why she squeezed into that first episode. Because I, I, the, the original break of the pilot of the, the first episode of Librarians happens right when Flynn is stabbed. We actually had to go take footage from the second episode, recut it so that her thing with the, the, the mirror and, and Judson happens in the first episode. We lost an entire scene with her where you find out, uh, well, I don't think this is a spoiler because, Lord, you know, hopefully we can bring Jane back now because she's free. Uh, she was actually Judson's guardian. Hmm. And so that's why, that's why I hint at that. That's when she comes running in to the room. For the first time you see her, like, not in her little pantsuit and stuff. She's all, like, her clothes are all ripped and she's carrying two swords. And you're supposed to think just as she blows in, like, wait, was, was Charlene out kicking ass in the other room? Why did we not see that? <laughs> I did pick that, that up. I was kind of like, uh, my eyebrow went up when I saw the, the tattered clothes. There is a, there, in the original version of the script, she's the one who saves Flynn. Huh. And and I, I just we and this is look this is the problem and this is so frustrating because fans they see a show from the outside and a lot of times they you know you're very frustrated because you assume that we have uh, complete and ultimate power but end end of day TV is a series of collaborations and compromises mm-hmm. and in particular humans are attached to those roles you know I, I would love to have made Judson recurring. Bob's Judson. Like, I can't, I can't just haul, haul him up to Portland. You know, Jane's uh, Charlene. She was on another show. You know, we are uh, consistently limited. You know, when it, it was as, as important as Mark Shepard was on Leverage, uh, he is, uh, you know, the Mark Shepard Full Employment Act of 2012 kicked in pretty hard. I mean, he was very hard to schedule on those shows. Um, when we did the season four finale of Leverage, where we brought back sort of all of the bad guys, Will Wheaton was shooting the season slash series finale of Eureka the same week. And he would fly up. We'd shoot nights. He'd fly up from Portland to Vancouver in the morning, sleep in his trailer, and shoot Eureka and get on the afternoon flight back to us. 
Like wow. that's what we had to do to, to get him because I thought, look, this is, it's well. And, and if you think of the iconic villains of Leverage, those are the people we went and got for that episode, you know, or the iconic sort of guest stars mm-hmm. for that thing. You know, the only one we didn't do was uh, Sterling because we always said Sterling will always be the sort of final boss, you know. Um, now he can never really like our guys. Sterling must always, no matter where he, how he might compromise, must always be uh, opposed us. There's um, a very long-winded way uh, to say it came together very quickly and uh, unspeakably fast and very difficult. And thank God we had the amazing production team from Leverage still mostly intact in Portland. Uh, they had been working on features and some guys had gone to Grimm and we were able, we would never would have been able to do it if we hadn't shot in Portland. Because not only did we have the amazing crew that we knew we could do this at this speed and this budget, we knew the city well enough. Mm-hmm. You know, to the point where when I was, we were writing the episode that's coming up, uh, it, it airs in two weeks when Flynn comes back. Um, uh, airs in three weeks, pardon me. When Flynn comes back, when the dragons rise, uh, we wanted to do a thing at the Vatican. And I was like, wait, there's a fountain I shot at down on Ankeny and Second with cobblestones. Like, that's how well we knew the city. Mm-hmm. That we could call locations as we shot the script. Yeah, and that was the only way we managed to pull this off in any wow. way, shape, or form. Fantastic. So um, when you're when you're working on a show like that, um, you know, I'm I'm guessing you kind of break down an overall arc or or, or certain kind of like playbook that the uh, writers then have to go by. Um, when you're working so quickly, do they get a little bit more latitude because? You know, you don't necessarily have time to micromanage things, or is, uh, or are you having to be more controlling. Um, the uh, different showrunners do um, different things. For a lot of showrunners, uh, you're there to do their voice. And I've mm-hmm. talked to showrunners like you know, the most important thing they can do is to have uh, the writers learn what their voice is and what their show sounds like. Uh, for me, it I, I like to run a staff a lot more like a jazz band. You are here because you play an instrument, interesting instrument I can't play. You know, you're here because you have a voice or an experience or a life experience or some tone or some style that I dig. So do it. Do, do the thing. You know, every year on Leverage, we'd start the, the, the year with, all right, what do you want to write this year? You know, what excites you? What makes you passionate? And let's see how we make that a Leverage episode. You know, for this show, uh, it, was, it was not that different because the room came up with all this stuff on the wall. And I said, okay, what do we want to do, guys? And Jeff Thorne said, I want to write a haunted house episode. Let's like do an old school haunted house episode. I said, sold, done. You know, uh, and we had had a sort of, um, we, we want to do sort of an ancient myth in modern time. And Jeremy Bernstein had done a bunch of research on the Minotaur for another project. He's like, I can absolutely do like a, the Minotaur um, but what do we do with the maze? And I said, well, let's, let's, make the maze in, let's make the maze more of a dimensional trap. It's almost more of a curse than a place, you know, where you get sucked into it like the grudge and you can't get out. Even if you escape the physical place, you're always drawn back into it. That sort of horrible distorting effect of suddenly you're lost in a city and you don't know why. You know, that sort of mm-hmm. – the, the, and people are walking by you and they have no idea, you know, that, that, that this is happening to you. So that, there's that. You know, Santa came together because we were looking at cards, and I was like, I just don't, I don't care about artifacts. I just don't. I care about people and stakes and emotions. And, you know, we want the, the Serpent Brotherhood to steal an artifact. What's something I care about? They said, what about a person? Well, well, who's a magical person? Santa, boom. And we, you know, Bruce Campbell is 
in the episode where the Serpent Brotherhood decides to kill Santa and steal his power. And Bruce Campbell's amazing as Santa, you know. Um, that is awesome. It's awesome, you know. And, and so it, that's how I run my room. Not everybody does it, but I'm there to try to empower writers to do interesting stuff. Uh, and it's just less work, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. So, and I write like the two or three ones that I really want to do. And first season, I always wind up rewriting every script, not because there's anything wrong with them, but a combination of uh, just so they all have one consistent voice. And um, so, and then they, that it can grow out of that. And I try not to write over the writer because a lot of time the writer discovers something about the character I didn't know. Uh, I'll always say in Leverage, it was Melissa Glenn and Jessica Reader, who's Jessica Grassley now, she got married, um, who figured out how Parker talked in the series. They wrote the two horse job. And um, really, as soon as they turned in that script, I'm like, okay, this is how she works. And they, they got her, you know, they figured her out uh, much better than I did. And, and so, very much on this series, you know, I think Kate Rourke really found uh, a way in on Cassandra, uh, I think. And she did some Ezekiel stuff that's also really interesting. Uh, you know, I like Jake Stone. Um, Jeff Thorne likes Cassandra and uh, Jake. Uh, you know, everybody, I think Jerry really likes um, Jake, is to tell you the truth. I think Jerry really likes John Larry I mean, everyone's got their thing and everyone's got their, their stuff they want to do. Um, so... So that's more of it. There's never a playbook with me. Uh, once you're in second season, it's like, well, go watch those episodes and see what happened. But uh, there's no, like, here's 25 pages of what my show is. Um, mm-hmm. The only thing we had to do is we had to do about a big memo on how magic worked. Because TNT had never done a magic show. And I will admit, as much as I love them, and we are all very good friends and they're a great network, a couple of the notes, the first couple episodes were, this, does this make sense? How does this, is this, you know, and, and we actually wound up using a line I said in a conference call later in the season, which is, uh, of course it doesn't make sense. It's magic. If it made sense, it would be science. That's, that's the difference. Um, <laughs> but, but coming up, I think it's in the next episode, actually. Uh, it's been, we've been doing post-production for so long, I've totally lost track of what's in each episode because I've been staring at each episode a hundred times. Right. Um, Jenkins explained, in the leverage in the library in the library universe magic always has three parts focus power effect some sort of power artifact or spell or person or ley line or place through a focus which could be a spell or an object or an artifact or you know or a person or, or that has an effect the distorting effect the magical effect that people see and they describe as magic and, and it was actually good. And I'll give TNT a lot of credit for this because not only was it good for us to lay that down, it allowed us sometimes when we were constructing plots to go, you know what? A smart audience might figure this out. Like if we, this is now like a procedural where if the audience understand there's always three pieces in an episode, we can give them two and see if they can figure out the third one. Yeah, and we do that very strongly uh, in one or two of the episodes where we're expecting the audience to kind of be playing along. But that's it. That's it's you know you're a writer, right? You're a stenographer. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so we know that there's a lot of yeah. You you just mentioned there's a, there's a lot of the same folks behind the camera that worked on Leverage, and I've, of course I've got some fans asking me, will we see any more people from uh, like Christian Kane who was on on Leverage? Will we see any more Leverage uh, character actors? Um, well, I'd love to, but everyone's over. working. Uh, 
you know, jeez, uh, 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 Jerry's on, just doing NCAA, so I think I can get her for something else. Um, Jean is in London. She's mostly doing theater now, uh, which was her route. I mean, she was, yeah, she, you remember she came out of theater before she did TV, and she's kind of doing theater again. Tim's on the Ridley Scott show. Uh, mm-hmm. Not the Ridley Scott, um, the John Ridley show, the, a- the ABC, the American Crime show. Aldous is on two shows. Aldous uh, did a guest star on Turn, and they loved him so much, he's a much bigger part of the second season. And then he's starring in an Amazon show that Chris Carter's doing, a uh, sort of post-apocalyptic show. Uh, Beth is on Complications on USA. Uh, it, you know, Drew, even Drew Powell is on Gotham. You know, and Mark Shepard's a regular on Supernatural. Although I have to admit, I emailed Mark Shepard about something else. He did me a favor. Uh, and he emailed back. He's like, by the way, I am available for three episodes a year. Like, he just wanted to make sure I knew. <laughs> nice. God help, I should ever do a show without giving Mark a, a role. He would just, he'd be personally very hurt. <laughs> um, so you're like, pretty much everyone you would recognize from Leverage is fully employed somewhere else at this point. You know? and, and again, you just run into this stuff where uh, there's only one of them. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So um, it was kind of fun seeing Christian Kane. Uh, I love the fact that he gets to play a completely different personality. Uh, he's not the the constantly brooding type that he was on Leverage. He he's he, his little kick of glee when he saw the flying sword just oh, yeah. made, made by night. There's well, a lot. There's I a, just wrote about that because he he did it the first time and he was like, well, yeah, he did a sort of a what the hell is that? And I went I went to him and I said, Christian. Give me about 10% more Jack Burton on that. And he went, oh, okay, I get it. And that's how you got that line delivery. It was like, <laughs> like, is that a flying sword? Oh, wang! You know, <laughs> because I, if you get two drinks in a Christian cane, he can do the entire Big Trouble in Little Trouble, uh, Big Trouble in Little China uh, dialogue run. He can do giant chunks of that movie. I'm pretty sure he can do the whole movie. Um, and, and you know, so if Jack I ever Burton did see did, a remake of of yeah. of, uh, of Big Trouble, I would love to see Christian Kane play Jack. He, he is constantly like, you know, John. I'm like, look, d- dude, someone else owns the rights. We just can't go make that movie. <laughs> we have to go get those rights. Um, <laughs> that belongs to someone. He was he, if Christian Kane could shoot a fan serve like just him as Jack Burton, like with one camera, he would do it tomorrow. We would lose him off librarians. He'd go do that. <laughs> uh, uh, he would make a fan movie of that before he came back to my show. Um, you know, Christian's a really gifted comedic actor, and this was what was great on Leverage, was we wrote him, you know, he was playing this role, but the really great moment to remember about Elliot Spencer is the comedy bits with Hardison or with, with Beth. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when I brought him on the show, uh, you know, he's talked about this, Dean and I said, dude, you can't fight as well. Like, you're a bar brawler. You know, the first time we did the, the, the bar fight, we were like, you look too good, sloppier. We did another take, like, Dean goes in, it's like, dude, you look too good. He can't do that. Big bar brawl haymakers. And Christian's like, yeah, it's tough. Christian worked very hard. I mean, he was basically in charge of that whole fight unit, second unit on leverage. And he choreographed every fight, and he spent hours of his own time. You know, on days he was, didn't even have to come in to make sure they looked good. So telling him, like, no, oh, you, you're, this is the show where you learn to fight. Uh, it was a little hard for him. But, but the thing is, it, the reason I hired him for this was he's one of the most gifted comedic actors I know. And he just kind of, he's a little too good looking and a little too good at fighting for anyone to notice that. You know, <laughs> but, but 
when you give him the comedic bits, he always nails it. He, he does a great double take. He has a brutal double take. He has a great sort of wide eye stare. Um, you know, uh, whenever I wrote episodes I directed on Leverage, I would write him these sort of awkward conversations and big comedy runs because I liked directing him in them. Uh, so this is really his chance to show the fact that Christian Kane's a really good actor who can do other stuff, you know, and, and, and really funny other stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to kind of get back into kind of the more producer side of things or, or you know, talking about rights. And one of the questions that popped up a couple of times uh, on Twitter, um, because I have a lot of role-playing game publishers in my in my feed um people were wondering like about the when a role-playing game would come out for the librarians if there was going to be one (laughs) it's like do you guys it's like uh, the show just started airing and people already want i don't even i I don't even know role-playing games now the role-playing game setting books are so detailed i don't even know if we have enough detail to fill one Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Leverage, we were two or three seasons in when we did the RPG with Margaret Weiss. And it was funny because I, I will fully say I don't do that stuff. I, I certainly have input on it. And, and what happened was, uh, you know, when we made Leverage, it was all in one building. It was uh, Dean owns this building in, in Hollywood where they do post-production and the writers were there and their offices were there. So there's a lot of cross-pollination and I would walk down to special facts and look at stuff. And I was walking by the executive offices and Rachel Olson, who kind of runs... Everything that is on fire in electric entertainment, that's kind of her job. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, it's, if it's not in somebody else's category, it's her. She's, I used to call her Minister Without Portfolio. And um, she said, hey, they want to make a role-playing game about leverage. I was like, oh, wow, that's great. I, I think that's fantastic. And uh, she said, um, it's this company. And I saw, um, oh, God, what was it? I don't, it, was it the Firefly? It was, it was, what was uh, Cortex's big game right before leverage? Um, let's see, I believe they did Firefly. It was Firefly. Star Galactica. saw did. those books on her desk. I'm like, yeah, they're fine. And she, and she said, should we check? I'm like, no, I'm vouching. They're fine. They're, they're great. Like, that, that is, we're so lucky it's them asking. Um, and, and, you know, so we reviewed all the materials. And, you know, they, they uh, it, I will admit, one day Chris Downey, when he discovered that we had a random villain generator... Uh, in the leverage role playing game, he's like, "Why are we even bothering? This? They solved it for us." <laughs> and he actually, because he doesn't role play, uh, but he was like, "Get your weird looking dice and show me how this helps us make television." <laughs> we, actually, we, wound, we never wrote the episode, but one lunch we actually used the leverage role playing game, and we're like, "Yeah, yeah, like you know, this isn't this doesn't work because leverage really works when one writer is passionate about a thing." Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we were in like episode 120 or something. Like, yeah, this would be great. This would be a perfectly good episode of Leverage. It'd be a ton of fun. You would dig it, yeah. Uh, and he was he was very upset that that we didn't had not had uh, stumbled across this earlier. Um, you know, so look, I think I think you have to wait till we know if this is season two because it's an RPG on a, a one season show is a little weird, no matter how good the opening weekend is. Um, you know, it's very gratifying that we're the. Uh, we might actually be the highest cable premiere of the year because we were smart enough to open late. Um, well, that's that's what I was seeing on the uh, yeah. Um, we're, we're, the, we actually beat buzz, last so. year. We're, we're five point four million for the premiere, the two hour premiere, and if you fold in um, the the re- the repeat, the encore, we're at like seven point three million for the night, which is uh, insane. Nice. Um, and I think that. Well, I think that's more. I think people were looking for that genre show. I think mm-hmm. that we had a very nice. I'll be the first to admit, TNT promo did a great job, and I think. Um, 
the audience was like, where's, look, I, I think we all feel the disappearance of Warehouse 13 very keenly on the first <laughs> You know, Doctor Who just ended, uh, mm-hmm. Warehouse 13's gone, and at some point you're like, where's my kind of light, funny Sunday night show? And we're, oh, well, hey, hey guys, you know, there you are. And I'm yeah. a firm believer there's like 10 million geek fans for anything as long as you can let them know you're there. Mm-hmm. You know, you just got to get through the goddamn noise. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's so many shows. And, and um, as, as good as those numbers are, you know, we don't know. There's a new boss at TNT. He's a very good guy. He called us and we, we had a nice conversation. He's a very smart guy who's run a bunch of networks very successfully. But we don't know if we're going to fit into what he's planning on doing with the network. You know. Uh, so um, uh, I'd wait. <laughs> just personally, before you invested uh, precious time and energy in your tiny company, because there's no such thing as a large role-playing game company uh, on our thing. Um, but ordinarily, you just contact the studio. Uh, and honest to God, it's this dumb. It's just this dumb. I mean, it's a little diff- it's a little trickier for bigger shows because you have to go through Warner Brothers, and they actually have licensing uh, departments. Um, where with us, you can get a, if you can figure out a way to get a hold of Electric Entertainment, you can you can at least get a letter to them. And they'll at least consider it. Um, and Warner Brothers and these people, these companies have, in theory, gaming divisions, even though nobody does tabletop role-playing games. Uh, or a few, very few companies, big corporations, have you know, tabletop role-playing games. Um, and Hasbro doesn't seem to want to get into it more than D&D, you know, more than Dungeons and Dragons. So, um, you know, I, I, here is the thing to remember. Everything you love that is made is made by people, and they're probably a lot like you. So it never hurts to just write him a letter. Honest to God. I mean, you'd be stunned at how many times that works. Uh, you know, and I also would say, I think using any system out there, a halfway decent GM could slap together a librarian's hack. I mean, really. I mean, all you really need to know is a little bit more of the secret history of the world, and it's, it's, most of it's revealed in season one. So, you know, by episode 10 of season one of Librarians, I think you could, I think you could, uh, I think Rob Donahue or one of those guys would have no problem uh, putting one of, putting a librarian's RPG together in, in, a, in a lazy afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So I have one person popping up on Twitter asking if you will be doing posts for the librarians on your Kung Fu Monkey blog. Um, I, I'm going to try. I'm, I'm trying to finish. I have another show, an NBC pilot that I need to do. Uh, and um, I'm finishing that this week. And if I can get that done before the next episode pops, I'm going to try to do an, a question and answer for the first uh, episode. But I am a little, uh, I'm a little jammed up. Speaking of, actually, I'm, I'm running into. I got a, I got a, uh, a phone call coming in that I got to sure. unfortunately have to hop yep. off for. Well, thank you so much for for spending time with us, and also thank you for participating in our our short story compilation for Tinsia. Really oh, it's a pleasure. It's a, it's yeah. I'm I'm as soon as they stop making me make television, I will I will hand it off to you. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, thank you very much again, and to everyone listening. Sorry for the abrupt end, but uh, we want to let John Rogers it's, get back it's to work. Literally, yeah, I'm sorry. It's literally my assistant is waving at me like, yep. "You really have to go." All right, I'll <laughs> come and I'm coming. All right. All right. Thank you very much, John. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye.